Comments made on the Ceratoc Podcast Network are those of the individuals and do not represent Ceratoc Corporation, its staff, management, board of directors, or third-party resellers. Hey, this is Bill. Welcome to this week's episode of Real World Fitness. We've got a great interview today with another uh, expert in the nutrition field from Precision Nutrition, Krista Scott Dixon. Krista is actually a doctor. She has her PhD and she spent some time in the world of academia as a college professor, wrote a few books, decided that wasn't for her and went into nutrition and now she is a integral part of the Precision Nutrition team. We uh, got a really great interview we did with her that I'm sure you're all going to really enjoy. So uh, let's get to that right now. And my guest this week from Precision Nutrition, doctor, she has a PhD, folks, Krista Scott Dixon. Thanks so much for taking some time with me today, Krista. Well, thanks for having me. So right from the beginning, I saw the PhD mentioned online several times, and I saw that you wrote several books and you were an educator, but I didn't see what the PhD was in or what the books were about. So can you tell us a little about your background? Yeah, that's a funny question because my background is pretty varied. I actually started out thinking I was going to be an artist. (laughs) My undergraduate is in fine arts, visual arts and film. And then gradually I started getting more into women's studies, of all things. And so I got very interested in gender, women's studies, um, especially women's work. And so I ended up doing a PhD in women's studies eventually, uh, specializing in things like women in science, women in technology. And then I got very interested in transgender issues. So I published a book about that as well, along with my book on information technology. I got interested in women's health. So there's a book out there uh, about women working in healthcare. And so I kind of found my way gradually through health and fitness um, with kind of a focus on women to the work that I'm doing now. And it's quite interesting, actually, how all of the training that I had whether that's art, film, women's studies, science, everything else, has contributed to what I do now. Well, everything we are is the sum of all the things that have happened in our past. So how did you end up at PN? Well, I also, so after I thought I wanted to be an artist, I thought I wanted to be an academic, and I made a pretty good go of that. So after the PhD, I um, did research and I taught at the university for about five years. And um, then one day I thought, you know what, I can't do this anymore. Um, I, I loved the way I explain it is I loved academia. It did not love me back. <laughs> so I think that encapsulates my relationship with it. But it came to a point where I just had to jump and I, I didn't have a, a, an exit strategy or a plan. I just jumped. And I had known the guy, one of the guys, so there were two guys that founded Precision Nutrition. So the best known, of course, is John Berardi, but there's sort of a less well-known one known as Phil Caravaggio. And I had known Phil for years beforehand. And so I phoned him up and I said, look, I quit my job. (laughs) And he said, well, too bad for you, but great for us. So, hey, I'm sure we can find something for you to do. Uh, come, Come and do a little something for us. And so I actually started out just editing their website. (laughs) <laughs> because, you know, a PhD gives you pretty good literacy skills. So I thought, okay, I can do this. And, um, and of course, you know, I've been doing health and fitness stuff on the side for a number of years. I helped put myself through grad school by working as a personal trainer. And I've had my website since the mid-90s. And so 
you know, I, I kind of had all these pieces. And so they needed someone to coach for them. They had a, an influx of extra registrations one time. And so I think it was 2008, 2009. They said, hey, come be a coach for us. And I thought, okay, that sounds fun. And I did it and I loved it. And I did it again. I did it three times. And then I started writing the program. And so it was just kind of this progressive application of skills and abilities that I had from before. And it grew and grew and grew. And, you know, so then I wrote the level two coaching program and now I'm helping rewrite the level one. So it's just, you know, over time, these things kind of evolve very organically. Let's do a way back. Were you an athlete when you, when you were growing up? How did, how did, what was your introduction to training and fitness and nutrition about? <laughs> well, I most definitely was not an athlete. <laughs> I was the kid that, that always was picked last for teams or the one that was faking illness and hiding out in the change room during gym classes. So I actually was an active kid because I grew up in the 70s and that was sort of the time of free range childhood. So we we're all riding our bikes and you know playing with skateboards and that kind of stuff on our own. But I was very much not an athlete. And so, but one day in the mid 80s, during the, there was kind of this brief shining moment for women's bodybuilding in the 80s when it was actually. I remember it. Yeah, right? Socially very palatable. Like it was a little bit unusual, but not strange to people. Like women could look at female bodybuilders of that time and say, oh, yeah, I would like to look like that. That looks good. And so I remember in the mid 80s. The Rachel era. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And even up to the Corey era, I mean, she had her show on ESPN that was very popular. And I think Corey was the last of the acceptable looks for women. Yes. I, in I, general. For sure. And, and you know, it certainly be, it became more of a subculture, I think, rather than a mainstream thing. But I remember in the mid 80s, I got this book. It was called something like Super Shaping the Feminine Physique. And it was all it was uh, full of female bodybuilders you know, and at the time who looked great. And it was very unusual because it talked about how they needed heavyweights and how heavyweights were great and weightlifting was fun. And I was just mesmerized by this. Like it just seemed so cool. And as someone who could never catch a ball, you know, or, or exhibit any kind of hand-eye coordination in, in team sports, weightlifting was really appealing because you don't have to be coordinated. Uh, you don't have to be anything special. You don't have to have a certain kind of body. Cause I was really, I was small. I was always the smallest kid in the class. So I couldn't sink a basket or, you know, do anything in volleyball or run fast. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I was always the slowest runner with the shortest legs. So this was an activity where you could be anyone with any kind of body, any level of ability and still enjoy it. And I thought that was really, really cool. And so I kind of did it on and off late 80s, early 90s, and then kind of stuck with it around the mid 90s because I was in grad school at the time and I had gained about 50 or 60 pounds. I kind of stopped measuring <laughs> and <laughs> I was living on chicken wings and beer. And at, at a certain point, I just thought, okay, this, this cannot continue, right? And, and so again, I, I sort of went back to what's the only thing I can do? Well, I can walk. I'm a good walker and I can lift weights. Okay, cool. Let's do that. So yeah, never an athlete. <laughs> and I think in a way, that's why weightlifting was so appealing. It was very democratic to me. It was very open-ended. Anyone could do it. That's true. And that's a thing that I think is very cool. Um, talking about adaptive now. And um, I have a lot of blind athletes that I've come in contact with. And the only sport, only competitive sport that I'm aware of that shows no adaptations at all is competitive powerlifting. 
I've got a friend who uh, holds a couple world records in uh, masters lifting, and you know, he said, you know, to qualify at the world championships, we competed in open powerlifting meets because there weren't any blind powerlifting meets, and. I thought that was very cool. The only thing they can't do is see the light. So, you know, somebody says lift, good lift, bad lift, whatever. And other than that, there are zero adaptations. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're aware that now they have wheelchair competitive bodybuilders. And it is weight training in all its different forms, whether powerlifting or bodybuilding or whatever is, I like that word, very democratic. There, there really are no boundaries with it. Mm-hmm. And the thing I like to say is whatever you can move, move it. And I, I think this is definitely becoming an increasingly salient question given the number of injured combat veterans that are coming back from overseas with quite significant injuries and, and movement limitations, you know, whether that's losing body parts or losing motor control or, uh, you know, brain injury, like whatever. And, and also as the society ages, right? So really what we're looking at is that most of us are going to have some kind of movement limitation or requirement for accommodation at some point in our lives. And sport, I think, has to acknowledge that on some level. And of course, you know, not all sports will be amenable to all bodies. But as you say, weight training is the one that really embraces almost everyone. Like if you can move any body part, you can move it against resistance. So yeah, you, you know, none of us are probably going to go to the Olympics. <laughs> you know, it's it's a pretty small club, but nevertheless, you know, you can significantly improve your fitness, mobility, quality of life, strength, you know, whatever else from weight training. So yeah, very democratic, very just open. You know, you can do it literally until you die, which is fantastic. It is, it is, and I actually know a few people. I've got a friend who is. Uh, 80, 86 years old. And he's still in a gym four or five mornings a week, rides his bike. And uh, I've known him since I was 15. He signed me up at my first gym. It was an old Vic Tanny's gym. And he signed me up back in the 70s and he's still going at 86. Let's go back to when you said you were in grad school and living on chicken wings and beer. Sounds like a Canadian to me. <laughs> um, so, you saw you got to do something. What was your personal transformation like? You were into weight training, and uh, how did you make your transformation? You said you were the shortest kid, shortest legs, and all. How tall are you so we can get a visual? I, I'm five feet tall. Five feet tall. So that 50, 60 pounds was a substantial, substantial amount of excess weight on you. Yes, definitely. Uh, that's, that's one of the downsides of being short is that five, ten, even five, 10 pounds makes a significant difference. So how did you fix it? <laughs> well, you know, in the beginning, because I was a broke grad student, I had no money. I couldn't even afford a gym. So before I even started weight training, I walked. I thought, okay, I got feet. I can walk. Um, and in the beginning, walking was painful too because I had been doing so much sitting and the excess weight was really causing problems with my hips and my knees. So, you know, but I kind of just laced up and went out there and did my thing. And at one point I got bitten by a dog, but I, you know, I kept... I kept walking. So I, I really persisted in it and eventually got together enough money to go to the gym. And I was very shy. Like I didn't want people to see lifting. So I would go first thing in the morning when fewer people were there. And, you know, I, and I just kind of kept at it and I kept reading about it. And this was pre-internet more or less. I mean, we would access the internet via text-based 
things, but there was not a lot of available. So I was reading some of the muscle mags. So I would read like, you know, muscle and fitness or whatever, and try to kind of cobble together something that seemed like a sensible routine. And yeah, I just kind of kept at it and kept at it. And people would often take pity on me and help me out. Um, This is where I discovered one of the nicest things about gyms, which is that sometimes the scariest dudes and girls in there are the nicest. So you can befriend the one that looks like a psychotic biker. And sometimes they'll just be the the loveliest human being and, and so helpful and wonderful. So I discovered that a lot of people were really helpful and genuinely wanted to assist someone who they saw was kind of struggling or maybe a little bit scared. So, yeah. So once I got, once I got going, I kind of got some critical momentum there and started seeing the results, started feeling better, started having more, more energy, got more interested in nutrition and so forth. So it was just this very organic process that I made a little bit of progress and that felt good. And so I was like inspired to make a little bit more progress and that felt good. But it certainly was not one of those overnight transformations. Like it really wasn't one of those magical stories where someone finds the perfect workout program and their body's instantly transformed. It, it really wasn't like that for me. And I don't think it's like that for most people. I think it's much more gradual than folks expect. And I feel like now, I mean, 20 odd years later, I feel like I'm still learning stuff. I feel like I'm still discovering stuff. I still feel like I'm still grappling with some of the same human issues that we all grapple with in terms of how we live in our bodies. Well, I think we all do. And I think those miraculous transformations, I think you only find those within the pages of a Weeder magazine. <laughs> exactly. I don't think you've, or, or now on the internet with those amazing before and after pictures with the lighting and the special effects and what do they call it? Oh yeah, Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you know, the, the thing I always wonder about is, okay, maybe like, let's assume for a moment that after photo is completely genuine. Let's just kind of have this as a thought experiment, right? So let's assume the after photo is genuine. I like to see the after, after photos. Like I always tell people like, come back and see me in six months. Like tell me about your awesome diet, your awesome new plan, whatever. Come back and see me in six months. Come back and see me in 12 months and then we'll talk. Because in my mind, I mean, making a transformation is challenging, but if you white knuckle it, you can make a spectacular transformation in a relatively short time. The key is what happens after that. Maintaining, I think, is one of the greatest victories in the world. Uh, Transformation is up there, but maintaining, way less glamorous, but way more significant. It really is. And what a lot of people don't realize, I I guess this goes back to my comment about these only existing in the pages of an old Weeder magazine. What people don't realize is when you see those pictures, they have dieted, they have tanned, they have done all these things to prep for that photo shoot. And these transformations are amazing, but that's been their entire life for three months, six months, however long. And now can you keep that while you're living your normal life, dealing with your family, your children, your job, your responsibilities, and all that other kind of good stuff. And that's that's where the challenge really is, like you say. Yeah, and also the question is, does fitness and nutrition expand your life and enhance your life, or does it shrink it, right? Because to get those Photoshop perfect transformations, as you say, requires you shrinking your life. 
shrinking your experience, you know, eating this very limited range of foods and engaging in this very limited range of activities and really constraining much of what you do. Well, that's a terrible way to live as far as I can see, to shrink and shrink and shrink until you're like this little pinpoint of existence. And to me, you know, fitness and nutrition should be about expanding your possibilities and ex expanding your opportunities and introducing you to the possibility of how you can live in a much wider world. And, you know, for example, for me, one way that's manifested is traveling. And when I travel, I like to really kind of get out and do stuff. So fitness and nutrition for me becomes about experiencing the world. Like I just climbed a mountain in Ireland and that was really fun. And I could do that because I have a healthy, fit body. So that's what it's all about, right? And so it's, it's kind of weird that our conception of what fitness involves involves really a life that is extremely truncated and partial and, and shrunk down when it should be the opposite. Isn't it supposed to enhance your life, not become your life? <laughs> in theory. <laughs> in theory. Now, when you were in Ireland, should I assume your nutrition was less than perfect? Did you sample the local fare? Did you sample the local ale? I did indeed. And let me tell you what the bread in Ireland, like I cannot do bread very well, but I didn't care. I was like, okay, body, you're going to have to take one for the team on this one because Irish soda bread is one of the greatest inventions ever. And they have grass fed butter. So these two things together are just a magical combination. So <laughs> there was beer drunk, there was cheese eaten, there was bread consumed. I can't even tell you how much bread was consumed. I think I ate like an entire loaf in one day because it was so, <laughs> so delicious. So my body was like, okay, please, you need to knock this off. <laughs> After about a week, there was whiskey drunk. You know, I mean, that's what it's all about. That's exactly what it's all about. And what you're describing sounds like me when I went to Italy. I don't even really like bread, but everywhere we went in Rome, in Florence, in Naples, had the most amazing, amazing bread. I mean, I could make a meal out of this bread and whatever the local house wine in that restaurant was. Oh, yeah. It I just, mean, it, for sure. Totally against what I do, but it was amazing. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I don't, I, I rarely drink much either. You know, alcohol really doesn't agree with me, but when I go to Ireland, I'm drinking whiskey and beer. And when I go to Italy, I'm drinking wine. Like that's, that's, you know, and I, I think too, what you're, what you're getting at a little bit is the idea of experiencing where you are and what you're doing and being very present with that. So, you know, in fitness and nutrition world, we often create these rules, like you should eat this or you shouldn't eat that and blah, blah, blah. That doesn't really allow you to engage with the present circumstances of whatever's going on around you. If you're so bound by the rules or the templates or the guidelines, then you don't adequately engage with what is actually presenting itself to you. And, and that's a problem as well, I think. You just, while you're talking, you just made me think of a, a little story I, wa I want to share. This was with somebody else I interviewed uh, about a year ago. And, uh, we were talking about his new ab book and he was talking about when he was touring with a rock band in uh in his late teens early 20s and he was mr hardcore fitness and sticking to his diet and he was somewhere in europe with his band with his friends and the locals had invited them to this wonderful feast of these incredible foods and wine and and he sat there with his uh, plain piece of meat and water and tried to be good and he said, looking back at it, it was one of the stupidest things he ever did. He missed this incredible experience because he had to stick to his perfect diet. 
Yeah, that I think that's just it. horrible. That captures it. That that captures it beautifully. And I think, you know, for those of us who are in fitness and nutrition, we've all had that moment where we try to be quote unquote good or follow the rules and it leads to some kind of tragic experience, right? Where we discover that in trying to follow the rules, we, we actually miss out on life. Uh, you know, I've heard of people passing up sex to have a workout. <laughs> I've heard of people, uh, you know, not eating something that a, a family member lovingly prepared for them. Like there's all kinds of stories like that. And we've all been there. I think almost all of us have done some version of that. And again, like we're not trying to be jerks. It's, we're, we're trying to do the right thing. It's just a, a misguided application of trying to do the right thing. Okay, I'm still back on somebody passing up sex for a workout. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some, me. some of my best me. workouts have been sex. <laughs> Let the internet know it was not me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's going to be all over Facebook and Twitter before this is over. <laughs> Really, it, it's, it's, you know, this is part of your life. This can't be your whole life. Even professional athletes, even world champion professional athletes. I have sat down and had dinner with world champion bodybuilders who had a glass of wine, a big steak, a baked potato with sour cream and butter. It's like, what about your diet? Eh, I got to live. Contest isn't tomorrow. So everybody, unless they're getting ready for an event, I mean, just lighten up, enjoy it. It's it's what it is there for. Yes, and I think the other thing is that we have somehow constructed living as contrary to health, right? Like if you if you ask people, like, what is health food? They they will usually come up with something that is bland and depressing, and you know, something you eat if you're quote unquote good right? But, but that really is kind of life, it detracts from your life, right? And I, and I think this is very interesting because to me, being healthy and fit and, and nourishing oneself is very life affirming. Um, and so it's interesting that culturally we've come up with this idea of like to live involves doing things that are antithetical to health. And I don't think it's that way at all. And I'm not saying you're saying that either. I just, but it's interesting that those things are, are oppositional in most people's minds. Because to me, good health is about this mental dimension and the emotional dimension and the dimension of pleasure and joyfulness, which, you know, when I talk to people about pleasure and joy and fun and fitness, everyone's like, what? <laughs> especially, especially women uh, who are just like, I don't understand this joy word that you're talking about or this fun word. I, you know, it's mostly theoretical. Uh, we, we've, we really grapple, I think, in North America with this idea of having fun or being joyful or being exuberant or, or feeling pleasure uh, physically. Isn't fitness, isn't working out supposed to be drudgery? Isn't it supposed to be torture? I mean, I, I, I remember, and I will throw these little things in just because they fit the question and the comment so well. It's, I remember walking into the golds I used to train at at like five o'clock in the morning one morning, and this one guy was in the locker room. He was already done. I don't know what time he got there. And he was, oh, man, I'm so glad I got through that. And I went, isn't this the only thing you do for you? I said, you're married, right? And you got a couple kids? And you're like a bank executive, so you got a high-pressure job. Isn't this the only thing you do for you when you're going, oh, thank God I made it through it? This is fun time. At least it should be. 
Mm-hmm. I'm, I, you can't see me, but I'm nodding my head to that. Absolutely. It, it's, it, you know, not every workout is going to have angels singing, but on some level you should be using it as an opportunity to connect with yourself and to find joy and fun. <laughs> you know, we, we've forgotten how to play and our workouts have become just another chore on our to-do list. Or we've decided that a good workout is proportional to the amount of suffering that you engage in, which is just, you know, in my mind, absolutely the wrong approach. And in fact, I just did a great podcast with a guy uh, who wrote a book called The Joyful Athlete, which I highly recommend. And he talks about how positive emotions can really facilitate performance. And I mean, I think all of us have experienced this, you know, if we go into a workout or an athletic competition or, you know, trying to execute some kind of sporting skill, thinking, oh, you know, this sucks and I have to do it and it's a chore and don't screw this up, then our performance usually sucks generally. Whereas if we go into something thinking, I love this, it's so fun, I get a chance to play, you know, the performance just flows. And his experience was in running and so he talked about finding this state of flow in running, but it really applies to anything. You know, for example, when I was doing judo and grappling, there were times when we would spar and I would think, oh God, don't screw this up, don't screw this up, right? Or she's coming at me, she's going to get me. And I would always tense up and go rigid and my performance would suck and I would get frustrated. Whereas if I went in thinking, yeah, it's playtime, let's see what we can do and just goof around and have some, have some fun, I would f- be so much more creative and energetic and I would find movements I didn't know were there and be able to execute them so much more smoothly. So, you know, we really have gotten down the wrong track with the whole workouts need to be suffering concept. So let's talk a little bit about your website. I think it's probably one of the longest running fitness related websites there is. It's been up since the mid 90s, I believe. Yeah, yeah. 96 or 97. I can never remember exactly the date, but yeah, around then. What possessed you to set up the site? What was your motivation? And let's just, you know, give yourself a plug here. Talk about the site a little bit. (laughs) Well, the site, I mean, I think a lot of the inventions that we come up with are really ways to solve our own problems. And then it turns out that someone else finds them useful. And so that was really the case here. I was getting interested in weight training, obviously, as I said, but really struggling to find good information for women. Um, like I said, there was muscle and fitness, but mostly it was aimed at guys at the time. And the only fitness material aimed at women was things like shape magazine or like just stuff that told us how to get skinny or was at the time warning us very diligently against the use of anything heavy. Like this was the time when well-meaning scientific authorities would say, don't ever lift anything over two pounds or something terrible (laughs) will happen to you. You're going to turn into a man. That's right. You'll turn into a dude. And I would always think like, okay, look, uh, women carry eight pound babies in their uteruses. So I don't know what's going to happen if I lift something heavier than that with my arms. But anyway, clearly a logical fallacy. But so I was at the university and and I had access to the university library. And so I could actually go and read the science, which... You know, sports science in the 60s was saying, yeah, women should strength train, absolutely. So the science was very much out of sync with the mainstream message. And so I thought, well, okay, this is really helpful for me to learn this and to have access to this information. And maybe it would be helpful for someone else to have access to this too. And 
maybe, I don't know, one or two people in the world would be interested in this. So I put up a little website with just a few pages, answering a couple questions, addressing a few myths, and that was it. And then questions would come in. And women would say, well, what about this? What about that? And I would say, hmm, that is a good question. I don't know the answer. Let me go look it up. And then I would create a little article. So it grew very organically, just page by page by page. And then it eventually just become, became this huge monster. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I realized that there was a real need for information for women that not only presented information that was scientifically valid, but in a way that was affirming and empowering and encouraging, in a way that kind of moved beyond the usual, like, here's how to get skinny, or here's how to fit into your wedding dress or whatever, but really looked at larger questions of like, how can you be in your body? And what does strength mean? And how do you get things done in a life that most women have, which is full of other demands and responsibilities? So it, I started to kind of address larger questions there in ways that I haven't seen as much elsewhere, even still. So that's kind of interesting. But really, it was an organic response to the kind of concerns and questions I had, and then the kind of concerns and questions that other women had. And it's evolved as I've evolved. I mean, now, now I'm 42, and I'm thinking about things that are interesting to me as a woman in her 40s which I never would have thought of <laughs> in my 20s. So now I'm thinking much more about longevity and what it means to live in a changing body and how one deals with aging and this kind of thing. So it's kind of grown up with me in a way. That's interesting where you just went because I was talking uh, with uh, one of my wife's ex-co-workers yesterday who is unbelievably fit Michelle is 51, 52. She has an absolutely amazing body. And she is one of those people that's a little unbalanced with the training and the diet and everything being top one of the top priorities in her life, at least. And she said, you know, I'm just, I'm frustrated. There's, there's fat on my body that I've never seen before now that I'm going through menopause. And, and my stomach, no matter what I do, just isn't as flat. And I said to her, you're insane. You look better. You're healthier. You're stronger. I said, how's your blood work? She said, my blood work's great. I said, you're in better shape than women half your age, and you're, you're just tearing yourself apart and getting upset over this tiny little bit of fat that you see that nobody else probably sees. That's an issue that you just said about accepting change, and your body's going to just do things you don't want it to do as you get older, whether you're a man or a woman, and you have to go, okay, well, you know, kind of sucks, but that's part of life. Yeah. And I love the way you said that. And I mean, I define frustration as arguing with reality, right? Reality will always win. <laughs> so I can rage and cry about, about aging and how, what, whatever my molecules of my body are doing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change things. Now I have a certain degree of choice, right? A certain degree of freedom to make decisions and, and shape my destiny. At the same time, there, as you say, there are physical realities that just happen without our consent. And it's kind of in a weird way. When I found my first gray hair, I was really happy because I thought, you know, my body's got a plan and it's going to do stuff. Regard it's going to handle its business regardless. So I don't have to pretend to be the general manager of this. And that was kind of a big relief <laughs> in a strange way. Like things will unfold. Biology will handle this. Evolution's given us millions of years of a good template from which to work. 
and the sequence will unfold and I don't need to control it. And that feels actually rather lovely to me. And I love this idea of just waking up and seeing, hey, what's happening today? Is there new stuff? Has stuff changed? I don't know. What's, how are we waking up today? And I, I literally woke up this morning. It's kind of funny. I literally woke up this morning, early morning, wake up. Cause Hey, when you're in your forties, your, <laughs> your body's like, get up at 4am. There's cool stuff to do. And I lay there thinking, wow, how awesome is it that I woke up today? Like how grateful am I to wake up today in this body that is so functional? Like that's tremendous because not a lot of 42 year olds are waking up on a Thursday morning going, I feel awesome. But I did. And I was, so I had this moment of deep gratitude for that. But, you know, in terms of aging, definitely people beat themselves up for it. I think part of it too is we don't have a model for how it should be. And so we imagine that it should be different. We don't know what a fit 51 year old looks like because we don't have a lot of cultural icons of that. Or if we do, there's some kind of, you know, outlier that's so far out that most of us can't even get there. So it's quite natural, I think, to beat ourselves up in a certain way. I used to joke about this with my clients. I used to say, look, I see you all in your underwear, <laughs> you know, because we do like photos of them in sports bras and stuff like that. I see you all in your underwear. So I know what 300, 500, 1,000 people look like in their underwear. I can tell you you're completely normal. But you don't know that because all you do is you see you as one individual case. And so you think you're weird and broken and unusual and there's something wrong with you. It's not true. You're just one normal person, you know, trying to make good choices in a sea of humanity. So that's the coach's eye view, which is kind of nice to have. And maybe that's why I do have that perspective now. That makes so much sense. When you're exposed to so many people, you're going to see what really is the average, what really is above or below the average. But when we just look in the mirror and we're living in our own body going, okay, there's more fat than there used to be. Okay, this is a little bit smaller. This is a little bit too big. This is a little whatever. But you're not seeing other people to really compare yourself to. And, you know, you really shouldn't compare yourself to other people anyway. You got to compare yourself to yourself because that's all any of the competition really is about is being a better you. But I think it would be easier for some people to take if they could go, wow, I really am in better shape than most people my age. Yeah. And if you can find your tribe, so I mean, we, we talk about me being short and it's always awesome to me to visit my relatives because we all look the same. Like we're all short and we're all stumpy people. And like sort of, I think of us as like draft ponies, right? Sturdy little bodies. And it's really awesome for me to go and visit my relatives because I'm like, oh, right. Like <laughs> we all look the same and we're all in the world in these kinds of bodies. And I, I don't feel like a weirdo when I'm around because everyone else is like me and that's cool. And I can see that this is a completely valid way to be. It gives me that perspective. Whereas, you know, when I'm around different groups of people, like, you know, I don't know if I get lost in a team of basketball players, I'm like, oh, I'm too, way too short. And, you know, it's so, I think part of it too is finding your tribe, finding people that look like you, finding people that share your physical interests, that speak to you in some way so you don't feel like you are alone. So it's, it's like balancing these perspectives. So on the one hand, yes, you're unique. Your body journey is unique. Your experiences are unique. At the same time, there are probably more people like you than you realize. It's just a matter of finding them. Let's talk about one of the things that you are 
well known as an expert in the subject of emotional eating. Just pick it up at any point you want. <laughs> the big, big issue. Yeah. Just jump in there. Let's just go there. Well, to me, this is an increasingly fascinating issue. And I think emotional eating just barely begins to capture it because I, I think it's, it's an easy concept to understand, which is that if you think about emotional eating, the idea is on some level, we try to regulate our emotional state by food and eating or not eating. But it's so much broader than that, which I think is just wonderfully fascinating. It encompasses everything from neurological inputs and outputs, the neurochemistry of addiction, behavioral science, environmental cueing, especially for women. But of course, you know, men do deal with this too, the role of trauma, you know, trying to deal with the after effects of trauma. And, and even, you know, so it ranges from that to just garden variety, trying to self-regulate in some way that is actually extremely effective. So I, I think people who know that they struggle with emotional eating feel badly about it. I mean, I've never met a single person who's like, yeah, I'm an emotional eater. Good for me. Right. But I, I think the first thing I'd want people to know about it is that eating is an absolutely logical, sensible way to self-regulate yourself emotionally. Like it makes complete sense from a chemical perspective and in some ways is sometimes the kindest thing you can do for yourself because what you're trying to do is either calm down or feel better or make yourself feel more safe and secure and in a way I kind of like that because it's like it's almost a very affirming thing because you're like I don't want to marinate in despair or anxiety or anger or sadness right now it's just too much for me so I'd like to feel better what is this thing that's going to make me feel better? Oh, eating or not eating or a certain kind of food. Boom. Like it's a very logical thing. So I think people beat themselves up for it, but I don't know. In a way, it's a very kind act. Now, obviously, you try to develop other methods of dealing with life and to kind of deal with your fundamental traumas and so forth. But at the same time, it's actually remarkably clever and creative, I think, <laughs> for the most part. Yep. Let, let me ask you this. In, in my opinion, and I've had people correct me in interviews recently in the past when I talked about good foods and bad foods, and I think this was a mistake on my part, and I see it clearly now, that people do put those positive and negative connotations. It's like what you were saying earlier about eating something that's good for you. I mean, we put so people will beat themselves up. Oh, I had the beer and the chicken wings when I went out with my friends after work. That's not bad. It's just what you chose to do then. There are no bad foods. They're what we perceive them to be. Yeah, and I like to frame it as choices and consequences or, or trade-offs. What are you willing to trade, right? And, um, and so in a certain situation, I may be willing to trade my long-term health for short-term relief. And... I think that's a completely valid choice. It may not be the best choice, but it's a valid choice. It's a logical choice. Uh, we're all making choices with trade-offs. And so, you know, if I feel really bad right now and I don't know any other way to solve this problem, like if my toolbox of solutions is very limited, it makes complete sense that I would choose something. So, yeah, I think we want to get away from this idea of good and bad foods. I mean, I think we can all agree that there are foods that 
add value to your body and foods that remove value from your body. And I, and I think that's a, a better way to think about it. But I also like to, to think about this idea of, of trading or compromising or negotiating or, or choosing because to me that gets at the issue much more. It helps it helps me understand what people are prioritizing because behavior is really a way of us expressing what is most important to us at any given moment. And sometimes in a given moment, just feeling better or just getting relief or just numbing the pain is more important. Um, I, I remember a, a less than awesome moment many years ago. I had just had a nasty breakup and I found myself in the kitchen at like 2 a.m. guzzling a bottle of wine. Now, like I'm a non-drinker, okay? So, but here I am, it's this classic like things that you do at 2 a.m. moment, right? <laughs> and I'm like, but it was like, a, it was a crummy bottle of wine. Like I was just chugging it. And later I kind of reflected on that and I thought, yeah, I just wanted the pain to go away. I just wanted to not feel so bad. And so I think that's really, you know, it's, it's more about trade-offs than about good or bad foods. Well, I always viewed it as, as balance and trade-offs and, you know, everything in life you need to find balances. And it's like if, if I go out with my wife and I just absolutely have to have some obscenely chocolatey writ, and it's only chocolate for me. That's my only real weakness there if i have to have it then the next day i'll just go okay uh eggs maybe do a few extra sets in the gym okay cut the carbs for a couple days it's just a balancing act which is all any of it really should be yeah you you do even more work than i do on that one i don't (laughs) i don't even i don't even attempt to compensate because for me personally in my own history compensation was the other half the other side of the coin uh, which was engaging in certain emotional eating behaviors or whatever, um, would then be followed with compensation. And I see compensation sometimes, and I'm not saying this is happening to you, but for me, compensation was very much the thing that then facilitated further problems. It was like, oh, you know, I had this binge and now I'm going to starve myself and do a five-hour bike ride on you know, an empty stomach kind of thing which then of course set me up for the next binge because then I felt terrible and hungry and crazy and anxious and whatever. So I think for a lot of people, certainly me, like some people can be cool about it. Some people like my husband, for example, he's very self-regulating instinctively. Like he's not thinking about it. His body is just kind of doing it. So after like a big holiday meal or something, he just won't be hungry the next day. And he's not even thinking I'm not going to eat anything. He's just not hungry and he follows his body cues. But I think for a lot of people, uh, there is kind of a conscious attempt to like fix things, if you want to call it that. And it can take a lot of different forms. In a way, it can set you up for even more problems. So I have learned personally for myself to not even attempt to compensate, to just wake up tomorrow and be like, well, nothing happened yesterday. It was a totally normal day. Today is going to be a totally normal day. <laughs> it's like these little psychological tricks that you play on yourself. <laughs> Whatever works. You just you just did a great impersonation of my wife just then. I call her Cleopatra. She's the queen of <laughs> denial. <laughs> yep. And I'm not that extreme about it. I think it's just the next day I just go, ugh. Okay, I ate it. I enjoyed it. All right, yeah, but I've never, never gone to that. Like you said, the starve yourself and everything that doesn't balance out. Because 
if I, you know, I did all that when I was a kid and the, the can after can of tuna and the boiled eggs and all that craziness. And all that ends up doing is making you want whatever that quote unquote bad thing is, or that cheap thing is that much more. So it's, 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 it's crazy to go to that extreme, I think. Yeah. And also too, it, it sets you up in this mindset of deprivation, right? I mean, people are walking around thinking I'm deprived. Well, you know, that's, that's a dangerous game to play, right? Because the second you're deprived, it's like, I always joke, it's like when someone's, you know, when you're, at the, when you're traveling or something like that, and someone announces there's no bathroom, all of a sudden you have to go to the bathroom. Like, even if you didn't have to before, just the knowledge that you can't get at the bathroom for the next half an hour, you know, like when you're in a plane and there's turbulence and they're like, sorry, we're putting the seatbelt sign on. You're like, oh no, suddenly I have to go for a pee. <laughs> so somehow with humans, it's like, setting up things that you can't have immediately makes you gravitate towards them. So, you know, again, it comes back to this good and bad foods. The second I tell you what's a bad food, all of a sudden you're like, I want more of that food. That's all I want to eat. Whereas if you kind of make the food like an open game and say, Hey, up to you, man, you're a grown up. you make trade-offs. Suddenly it's like, Oh, well, okay. That, that food I just wanted is sort of less appealing now. And, you know, sometimes even with clients who are dealing with binge eating, I do this thing where they're like, oh, you know, I'm binge eating and it's so bad and I shouldn't be doing it. I'm like, okay, tell you what, let's play this game a different way. I want you to binge whenever you feel like you need it, right? It's, it's a tool that you can use whenever you've just binge your freaking face off, like eat three pizzas. I don't care. The only catch is you have to do it slowly. And that's kind of a head scratcher for them because they're like, oh, uh, okay, because now you've just given me permission to binge and it's not as fun anymore. It's not as appealing. Like if I have permission to do it, now it's like that forbiddenness, the appeal of the forbiddenness is taken away. And so sometimes they'll go away and they'll be like, yeah, Coach Krista told me I could binge. And then they'll start into it and they'll be like, uh (laughs) <laughs> this is this is kind of sucky this. now. Yeah, it's kind of sucky now that it's it's not forbidden anymore. So you know the the concept really does apply in all kinds of ways. See now, you just said when you mentioned slowly. I don't know if this is something that you wrote that I read, but it, I read so much, and you know I did my research on you, of course. But I read somewhere about people who binge eat tend to eat very fast, don't even enjoy what they're eating, don't even taste it. Actually, I think it was something Brian St. Pierre wrote. I think that's where I saw this. Um, and it was talking about eating slowly. And I'm, I'm, I don't know where it went, but it was, it was people who binge will, will like shovel the food in, not even chew it, not even taste it, not even really enjoy it. And help me with this. I'm kind of not sure where I'm going. Yeah, no, no, you're really getting at something. And this is probably me because uh, I have to say I, I used to be an absolutely champion binger, so I can speak with great <laughs> authority on it. Um, but yes, this is the thing. It's a very, you almost go, and there's a, there's a name for this, cognitive dissociation, I think, or something, it's cognitive dichotomy, that's what it is. And so it's like, it's like the angel and the devil on your shoulder, right? Like the little angel is like, what are you doing? Stop it now. And the devil's like, do it, do it. <laughs> And so, you know, you, you actually kind of dissociate when you binge, you go into this weird zone where it's like something takes over your body and you're kind of like a zombie. And the objective of a binge is almost to reduce your level of consciousness. 
And so what happens is it becomes this very repetitive robotic act and you can't get the food in your face fast enough. Like I, I've spilled food on myself or like, you know, like dropped it on the floor. Like I'm trying to get into my mouth so fast and I'm being totally uncoordinated with it. And so part of the binge act is that it's fast. It's fast and repetitive and dissociative. And it's just like, get it done, get it done, get it done. Right. So when you slow it down, first of all, you put your, your conscious thinky brain more in control and enable yourself to experience the sensations much more. So it kind of puts the brakes on things generally. Like it's very, very, very hard to binge slowly. Like you, you just can't do it to the same extent that you can do it quickly. So it's a very effective tool because it doesn't take away the act of binging. It doesn't take away the amount of binging. Cause I'll say to people like, you know, eat as much as you want. I don't care. Just do it slowly. So it allows you to feel like you can have everything you need in order to feel better. At the same time, it helps all of those other processes that would regulate it. So it puts your left brain in control. It puts your conscious reasoning in control. It puts your physical sensations in control. Like all of a sudden you can feel your stomach. All of a sudden you can, you know, feel the food piling up. So it's an incredibly effective strategy just to slow down. And it's also a simple strategy. Like it's not fancy. You can do it anytime, anywhere. And that's one thing I really love about it. But yes, so that the hallmark of a binge is that sense of compulsion. And people will talk about objective versus subjective binges. So an objective binge is like, by any standard, what you just ate was crazy. <laughs> you know, like you just ate way too much by anyone's standards. Whereas a subjective binge, I can binge subjectively on like three grapes. It's the feeling, the compulsion, the urge, the drivenness that makes something a binge or, or not a binge. That right there is very interesting. Three grapes because you had, so what you're saying is to classify it as a binge, you had that obsession. You had to have whatever it was, even if it was one grape, you had to have it. That's right. That's right. You felt the push, the urge, the compulsion. Okay. I'm going to throw something. This is one of my little personal weirdnesses. And I want, want your thoughts on this. If I have a package of something, and like I said, chocolate, dark chocolate is my only real weakness. If I have a sealed package, it can sit there forever. But the second I break the seal on that package or I happen to notice the package and my wife happened to have opened it, I can't leave it alone. I'll just keep going back to it, going back to it, going back to it till it's gone. And, and you're wondering what's wrong what, with what's- me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we you're, could do hours on what's wrong with me, but I just want your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, that's really what we would call a disinhibition stimulus, which some people call it the screw it moment. And everyone has a different <laughs> screw it, right? We, we kind of make up rules about how the universe works. So it's kind of like an if then, if this, then that. So if the package is closed, then it's not accessible to me or, or I don't want it or whatever. It's off limits in some way. But if the package is open, matter. then doesn't matter. Exactly. Right. So, and so that's, what's called a disinhibition stimulus. So basically something that opens the gate to a sequence of behavior, an automatic sequence of behavior. And everyone has a different disinhibition stimulus. Um, one of mine used to be, well, I'm traveling. So nothing, nothing I do in a, in a different city, <laughs> it makes a difference. Right. So why not just go hog wild or, you know, for some people it's like, um, 
well, I've already eaten three cookies. I might as well eat the rest of the bag, right? So, so it's whatever you would consider personally to be that screw it moment that unlocks the gate to further behaviors. It's just wrong to save two little cookies. It's just a waste of space. Right? (laughs) It looks so lonely in there. Totally. No, don't make them sad. Give them a home. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're not well. You really aren't. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean that with the greatest of respect and admiration. Listen, after, you know, we, we've seen about 30,000 clients at Precision Nutrition. You, you definitely learn to keep it real. Yeah, after that many people, you've heard it all, you've seen it all, and nothing anyone's going to throw at you is going to shock you, I wouldn't think. No, and, you know, people are way less screwed up than they think, right? Everyone is convinced that they're broken or weird or deficient in some special way. You know, we're just all trying to get through the day. We're all just trying to make the best choices we can and and to just get through another day uh you know i I tell people to try and take a very compassionate realistic perspective about their lives because that's all we're trying to do is just make it through with the limited equipment that we're given and so all i do as a coach is i don't change you i just give you more tools in your toolbox and you can choose to use them or not that's simple enough We've obviously covered a lot of stuff and there's a lot more we could do. And uh, But just to wrap things up for now, is there any place else you'd like to go or anything else you'd like to say? No, I think you have done a very thorough job of covering quite a lot of ground. So, uh, I mean, yes, we could probably sit here and talk for 12 hours, but I think that we've given folks a good survey of the general uh, areas that I'm interested in. Okay. You want to just throw a... Uh parting commercial here for PN or for your website or anything else out there? Final thought to them? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it for both. And I, I mean, stumptuous.com is my website. It's a place where you can learn about especially women's health and fitness, but also kind of larger questions of mindset and how to think about how to have a body in the world. And then if stuff that you've been listening to is kind of perked up questions for you or you feel like you might benefit from help, I would definitely recommend Precision Nutrition, especially our coaching program or our certification program. Um, If you're someone who is interested in helping people through some of these difficult questions, it's a great place to be. And I mean, we have a saying at at Precision Nutrition, which Phil Caravaggio coined, which is nothing worth doing can be done alone. And I think, you know, folks are listening to this thinking, oh, I'm really struggling with my own stuff, whether that's eating, fitness, you know, making the right choices, aging, whatever. It really is incredible to get coaching, to feel like someone else knows and understands and and gets you, and you're not uniquely broken or bad or lazy in some weird way. That's such a powerful experience. And I myself get coaching. I have multiple coaches. It's fantastic for feeling supported, for growing, for developing, even just handling your life, you know, just getting up in the morning, coaching can help with that too. (laughs) So that's what we do at Precision Nutrition. And I would definitely recommend folks just come and check us out. There's tons of free stuff on there as well. So uh, you can come and spend really hours on our website, just poking around, looking at the free stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, and the emails, if you just get on there, little, you know, thing where they send you all the emails with the announcements of the upcoming coachings and so on, there's just so much good information that comes 
I've got a separate file in my email that I just put those to the side when I have time. I sit down and start reading because I don't know if John Berardi really writes all of that or he just puts his name on all of it. But there's a lot of really good stuff there. And it's an organization of people who really believe in what they do. Like they really this is we're, we're not an organization that's out to make a profit or swindle people out of their hard earned money. We would probably, no, I shouldn't say this, maybe what we should, we'd probably do this for free, <laughs> but we really believe in what we're doing and we really recognize that we're making a difference. And sometimes we've literally saved people's lives. Like it's, it's kind of crazy. Like people will say to us, wow, before I came and saw you and did your coaching program, I was on a track to my own death for, if, from some chronic disease or whatever. Um, and you guys literally saved me. Like I've now seen my lab test results, whatever I've got is in remission or my numbers look better, whatever. Like you've fundamentally changed the course of my life. And to me, that's just like, wow. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And all of us feel that and it's very meaningful work for us. So we're very committed to what we do. So if you do come and check us out, you will find a very nice group of people who, just want to take good care of you, basically. Well, based on my conversations with Brian and now this conversation with you, I, I couldn't recommend dealing with you guys or anybody else that's on that staff any more highly. And I've heard nothing but good about John Berardi from people like Dan John and other people that I've spoken with. And it's, I don't, I don't want to say it's the best program out there because I don't know everything that's out there, but it is definitely a program that is 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 worth looking into. And definitely from my experience, it's got some really awesome people as a part of it. So now I am going to wrap this up. We've been talking with Miss Dr. Krista Scott Dixon uh, for a good while here now from Precision New- Nutrition and Stumptuous. Now I finally understand where Stumptuous came from. I kept thinking my computer was misreading that, but we're talking about her being a short, stumpy lady, I think. And uh, (laughs) that's her word that she used before, not me. I would say petite, diminutive. She can say stumpy if she wants, you know. So you've been listening to us talking for the last little bit. This is Bill on Real World Fitness, and I hope everyone has a fantastic week, and we'll see you soon. Real World Fitness is a production of the Serotalk Podcast Network in cooperation with CoceabaFitness.com. All questions, comments, and feedback should be submitted to resources at Serotalk.com. If you're listening on a mobile device, use your iBlink radio app to submit an iReport.